Hi friends, welcome to the St. Anne Parish Podcast, where we seek to bring people to Jesus, form disciples, and send them to transform the world. We hope you enjoy this episode. It's a gift, a privilege to be with you tonight. As Father said, my name is uh, Tim Glimkowski, and I'm the executive director of the, the Apostolate and the National Eucharistic Congress that was founded by the U.S. bishops to help lead this Eucharistic revival. I'm a, a graduate of Steubenville, Franciscan University of Steubenville. I'm not going to give you my whole story tonight. I'm going to tell that all tomorrow so that you have to come back, uh, all the juicy bits. I've actually got too much that I want to dive into tonight, but as a graduate of Steubenville, I know a lot of, of people who uh, were parishioners at St. Anne's or new parishioners at St. Anne's. For so, so for years now, I've been hearing about uh, this wonderful parish. So to actually get a chance to, to be with you and to, to preach the next two nights and to be sort of the opening act for the king of the universe, who's going to actually come and change hearts and transform lives. If anything else, uh, me being here, and you'll hear more about it tomorrow, is a testament to the fact that there's power in Jesus in the Eucharist to change and transform lives. Um, and, and that's kind of what I want to focus on uh, tonight and tomorrow. So um, kind of interesting, right? Sort of fascinating. You know, I, I do have a, an opportunity to go travel a fair amount and speak these days and, and talk about the things that I care about, which is namely the renewal of the church and, and revival in our world through Jesus in the Eucharist, a renewed and rekindled relationship with our Lord truly present in Jesus in the Eucharist. And um, it's a gift to get to go and, and spend time with different groups and, you know, uh, in a particular way, I have been really excited for this uh, gathering. I think knowing sort of the community of faith that exists here and the, the sparks uh, that are already present in such a, a community of mission and evangelization and so many of you that have probably, I'm probably looking at people who commit to a weekly holy hour at 2 a.m. And, and, and drag themselves here to the pair, right? Like there's just a lot of people who uh, are already living it in so many ways and the chance to come and be with the community with you all. I've been, I've been uniquely excited. I'll admit, like, uh, I guess what I'm saying is, is like, not all opportunities to gather are equal, and, and yours, you're my favorite uh, event. And I, I, I don't even mind admitting that on camera, but I've been kind of excited to be here and uh, have felt in a particular way, I guess, as I've prayed about it, that maybe God had a unique plan for our time here and, and, and our time together. And uh, then on Thursday, I, I have young kids. So my daughter, Eva, is seven. Uh, my, my son, Theo, is five. Charlie, named after John Paul II. Carol, Yosef, Charles Joseph is two. Uh, and then we actually have our fourth, uh, Vera Veronica, is due in May. So life is busy and they're kind of in that phase now where they go to school uh, and then bring home all of the diseases from all of the, <clears throat> does anyone, parents, you know this, this phase? This is like, um, so, you know, something was going around the preschool last week and we, and we got it and I got it and, you know, we all got through it and we made it in a couple of sleepless nights and then we were fine. But I was left with sort of this uh, <coughs> head pressure afterward, even, you know, long after past, I promise. I mean, I'm up here anyway, so we're like, we're totally social distance, I guess, anyway. But either way, like, I was totally through it, not sick, uh, not feeling much of a way anymore. And then uh, got on my flight, you know, early this morning and, and, and was starting to land and I had this head pressure and we're getting 15 minutes kind of, you know, landing. I'm already thinking like, man, like, you know what, I'm so excited about this event and, and was feeling kind of run down and we had these sleepless nights and all right, Lord, I'm just going to give that to you and surrender that to you in a new way. And as we're landing uh, at DFW, all of a sudden the 15 minutes as I'm going, I started getting this excruciating ear pain. Well, I, I burst an eardrum uh, landing in Dallas this morning. So to me, what that means uh, is that God's up to something. Because when God's on the move, old scratch tries to follow behind. And I think in a particular way, it confirmed for me uh, that, you know, thorn in the flesh or not, what this time is about in these night, two nights with you is resolving to know nothing, no human or angelic tongues, no human wisdom, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That if this is a faith community that for many people have already known the Lord and been walking with him for years, and maybe you're here and that's not your story and that's, that's okay too, but then in a particular way, there's an opportunity that God wants to put in front of us to do something new. 
He says in Isaiah 43, when the Israelites are in exile, pointing to a time that's going to come where he's going to come and be born of a woman. Behold, don't consider the former things. I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not yet perceive it? In the wilderness, I'll make a way. And in the desert, I'll make rivers. I'm he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and your sins I will remember no more. God's doing something new. Do you not yet perceive it? You know, on February 8th, there was a group of uh, Christian students at a small Baptist college in Wilmore, Kentucky, uh, that most people hadn't heard of until about two weeks ago, uh, that went into their Wednesday chapel service, which I understand is like the boring one, like the one you kind of have to go to because it's like a, a Baptist school. And they received there at that chapel service a relatively unremarkable talk, which gives me a lot of consolation as a speaker. And I've watched it. I mean, it really, like, it, it, it was nothing to write home about. But at the end of this talk, the speaker was talking about the need to just return to the Lord with our whole hearts. And so some students stayed afterward and were just praying because they wanted to return to the Lord with their whole hearts and they were just kind of repenting with each other and, and, and asking for more of God. And apparently there was such a profound presence with this small group of students, uh, a sense of God that they just stayed for a few hours praying and repenting and praising and worshiping and testifying all in kind of a relatively unemotional way, sort of just like an average, you know, Bible chapel. You know, definitely not beautiful. And there was such a strong presence of God that people just started coming and joining them and praying and repenting and testifying. And then all of a sudden people started getting healed while they were there physically and emotionally and mentally and from all kinds of different things. And then like 10 days later, Tucker Carlson was talking about it. <laughs> because they hadn't stopped praying for weeks and thousands of people were flocking from all over the country to be with them. It's an ordinary, unremarkable circumstances that God can choose to act powerfully if we decide to return to him with our whole hearts. You know, there's the great Benny Hinn. You're familiar with Benny Hinn? He's kind of one of those TV healers. One of those. He gave a, 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 a testimony a few years ago, five years ago. He was talking to his church. And he said, you know who has more healings happen in their church than anybody? You know what he said? He said, the Catholics. This was in 2016. He said, you know why? Because they have the Eucharist. I'm, this is dead. You can go find it on Facebook. He said this. Because the presence and the power of God truly present in the Eucharist is the greatest story that the world has ever heard. And as Catholics, for thousands of years, our church, our faith has been confected out of this mystery and returned back to it, an explosive dynamite of power sitting at the heart of the life of every parish in the Catholic Church throughout the world. And we've refused to light the fuse. And so what I think God is saying to our church right now, by exploding my eardrums, I'm serious, if I'm talking loud, I can't hear myself at all. Is come back to me with your whole heart. It's not a secret that we live in interesting times, amen? Like we're having like the bingo card of crisis and trauma. We've all got bingo. The world ended three years ago and we just all went on living. 
What do you do with that? We're incredibly divided. We hate each other. We can't even talk about it. What do you do with that? How do we just go back to life? How do we just go on, move on with wars and pestilence and famines and droughts and wildfires and... It's in times of incredible crisis and turbulence that God chooses to move in a new and a powerful way. It's the greatest sign that God's about to do something new. Because when we start believing and seeing evidence of the fact that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and there's no hope, it's then that he's about to do something new. Because if, if, if the Bible has taught me anything, the inspired word of God, it's that when we as the faithful, the beloved people, the sons and daughters of God, stop believing in our own power and start believing in the power of God to actually change human history and change hearts and transform the world, that he then has the space and the freedom from our own ego to act. Amen? Was I talking loud? I just can't hear myself. <laughs> we live in interesting times. And it is those times that is proof positive, in my opinion, that God is about to do something new in our church. It is not true that the world is too bad for the gospel. Can't hear anymore the truth that is found in the mystery and the magnitude and the goodness of Jesus present in the sacraments. It's not true. That's a lie. That people are too addicted to smartphones. That TikTok and Chinese spy balloons are too powerful for God to move in a new and sovereign way and change and transforms hearts. We are not doomed to inevitable decline and ineffectivity. That doesn't have to be our story, but it will be if we only rely on our own power. Here's what I see in the church right now often. The, the Sunday gospel a few weeks ago, you're the light of the world. Don't hide it, right? You're the salt of the earth. But what happens if salt loses its taste? What does the gospel say? It's good for nothing except to be thrown out. You know what I thought when I heard that a few weeks ago? What if it wasn't the salt's fault? <laughs> what if the salt had fallen in love once upon a time and encountered a truth and a beauty and a mystery, a power and a love and a comfort, a life to the full that was so compelling that it wanted to give everything to it. And then what if the salt had seen enough? Seen enough of the church? Seen enough of the world? seen enough of itself and its own inadequacies and failures and faults and sins? And what if the salt just got kind of worn down and was tired of going through the routine and the mediocrity and the pressures and the stress and like, what if it wasn't the salt's fault? Would it still have to be thrown out? What would you do then, Lord? And I was brought back to the story, my, my all-time, my wife's name is Magdalene. My all-time favorite figure in the Gospels is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene lived with her whole heart, with her whole heart. Unfortunately, the first time she gave her heart away to the wrong things. You don't become possessed with that many demons on accident. You don't stumble into that. But she rushed headlong 
with a heart filled with a zeal to love and to be loved into the wrong things. And she became incredibly caught up in something, right? And Jesus frees her. And she gives her entire heart to Jesus. Has anyone seen the first episode of The Chosen? I wept like a baby. She gives her whole heart. She's there every step of Jesus' public ministry. Did you know Luke chapter 8? Mary was actually one of the funders of Jesus' public ministry. She was one of his first major benefactors. Did you know this? It says there she would support the work of Jesus and the apostles. Incredibly successful. She gives him her whole heart. And there's a tradition about Mary that was more common in the early church and in the medieval church than it is today. In the last 150 years, there's been some suspicion cast on it, but I'm, I'm all in on it. I don't, you don't need to believe it, but I'm just going gonna, gonna to go there for a second. Which is that Mary Magdala of Magdala is actually the same Mary as Mary of Bethany. And that as a close friend and family friend of Jesus, it was her brother Lazarus that actually died. And Mary, who gave her whole heart to the Lord, for the first time experiences a faith crisis in following Jesus. You drove all these demons out from me, and you couldn't save him? Lord, if, if you had been here, but you didn't come, did you? Have you ever felt that way? Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But then where were you? It's either all powerful or all good, because it can't seem to be both in light of what just happened. And then he rises from the dead. And then Jesus tells Mary and all the apostles... If you believe, greater things than this will you see. He was rotting, and he rose from the dead. Like they weren't even praying for a miracle anymore. They were way past that. And then he rose from the dead. And then not long later, if you read John's gospel, it's John chapter 12 uh, that Lazarus is raised from the dead. In John chapter 11 and 12, he says, greater things than these will you do. And then he goes away and then like a few weeks later enters into Jerusalem. So like it's not long, it says, remember the Pharisees then sought to kill Jesus on account of this miracle raising Lazarus from the dead. So only a few weeks later, Jesus is back in Jerusalem, right? And he's arrested. And Mary, who has rushed headlong into this, relate, given her entire life, her entire life savings, everything she has, she's put her entire trust and identity into this man. Because she believes that he's God. And then he allows himself to be arrested and killed. And can you imagine the feeling for Mary on Holy Saturday? Like by analogy, think about it. Like you pick up and move across the country for a job, you know? And they fire you on day one. How would you feel? Yeah. We have to reevaluate, you know. She's lost everything. And so on the next day, it says here in John chapter 20, now on the first day of week of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She, this was a woman who had lost it all and then found it all, and now she's lost it all again. This is a woman whose salt has lost its taste, right? She has nothing. She's despairing. She's broken. She's doubting. 
And she came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she runs and she tells Simon Peter. Simon Peter and John come back. They see that the tomb's empty. They go in and they leave. But she's still confused. (laughs) Because it's about the person. She met a person. Right? And he had given me everything and I still don't see him. So in verse 11 it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And finally, for the first time, now that Peter and John have left, it says, as she wept, she stoops and looks into the tomb. Weeks, potentially, if you believe that interpretation after watching her brother go through the same thing. And when she stoops, finally, overcoming her doubt and her fear and her inhibition to actually look into the tomb, to see the emptiness in the place where her life was, that everything has now been shattered, as she stoops to look in, she sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Saying this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, you're the salt of the earth, but what happens if salt loses its taste? What's needed if you've seen too much of the world and the church and yourself to be anything but slightly suspicious of anything more than just kind of like getting by or doing pretty good or being faithful, right? Revelation, chapter two. It's recounting messages from an angel to all these churches, to all these ancient churches. And one of the churches is given to the church at Ephesus. Do you know much about the church at Ephesus or who lived there? They had a very famous resident at the church at Ephesus. Her name was the Blessed Mother. You may have heard of her. Their first uh, bishop was a guy named John, the beloved disciple, good leadership, strong spiritual core. Here's what the angel says to the church at Ephesus when the book of Revelation is written. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not, and found them to be false. So, They're very faithful, right? They test people who come and teach things that are untrue. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. They're suffering. They're offering it up for the sake of God. These are faithful people. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've lost the love you had at first. Isn't that the story for so many of us? We've been faithful and patient, and we haven't grown weary, and we've endured. And people don't even know the amount of sacrifices we've had to make for the faith to to live it out in this culture that's so antithetical to everything that the gospel teaches, right? And to endure patiently, and even at times boldly, and Yet what does the angel hold against us? 
We've lost the love we had at first. How does Jesus want to bring us back? It's only when we show up at that tomb and are willing to be bold and brave enough to look in to find him and to hear him say, whom do you seek? And then finally to hear him say our name. St. John Paul II used to say, it's Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness, when nothing in this world will satisfy you. That's the thing I say to my kids more than anything else. Ask my wife, I say to them over and over and over again, it's Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness and when nothing in this world will satisfy you. But for so many of us, we've been so faithful And yet we've lost that first love. I didn't realize for a very long time growing up Catholic that everything we do as Catholics actually has a point to it, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to say. But admit it, you felt the same way. We do a lot. We celebrate a lot. We teach a lot. But there's a why that sits behind everything that we do. There's a story. There's a purpose. There's an intention. But too often, we've gotten so mired in the why that we've forgotten the what, and that that what is a who. That it's ultimately a story of a father. And so if tonight is going to be about me being the opening act so that the king of the universe can come and say our name to us in a new way, I don't want to go any further before we come to understand a little bit deeper or in a new way or see clearly that story. If you talk to people who are in the world of organizational health, these gurus that help big Silicon Valley companies make remarkable cultures with high productivity, they'll tell you the one thing every organization needs to know above all else. Do you know what it is? Why do we exist? I don't think we think about that enough as Catholics. Like, why is there a St. Anne's in Capel, Texas? Why is there a Diocese of Dallas, a Catholic Church in the United States, a USCCB, smells and bells and rosaries and statues and adoration? Like, why does any of it exist at all? Ultimately, in my opinion, I think it's the story of a father. I think in order to understand why there's a St. Anne's in Capel, Texas, and a beloved son and daughter and a Mary, that we have to first realize that all of that exists because this book is about a dad. A dad who, from all history, saw every possible scenario that could exist, every multiplicity of multiverse, quintillions of stars and galaxies, and decided that the one of all of those infinite possibilities that contained you was good. In the beginning, God created are the first five words of the Bible. And the question you and I don't ask enough is why? Why? Because theology nerds will tell you, of which I am one, where are my theology nerds at? Not, not enough hands. <laughs> we'll be studying the Summa tomorrow morning over breakfast right here. But they'll tell you, God doesn't need anything. You and I need stuff. And out of that need arises desire. I'm hungry, I'm angry, I'm lonely, I'm tired. Like we, we have a, we experience a lack, that a lack becomes a desire, that desire becomes action. I eat the food. God doesn't act that way. 
He's a perfect love relationship. A father who gives uh, his love to a son. The son receives that love, gives it back to the father. The love between them is so powerful that it's generative. A third person. Spirated, the Holy Spirit out of all of it. And in that relationship, God is perfectly content. He is laughter. He is delight. The inner life of the Trinity is pure joy. So he needs nothing. And yet, in the beginning, God created. Why? St. Thomas Aquinas would say, it's because of you. He would say the last uh, in execution is the first in intention, meaning when you read the inspired word of God and it tells you the story of creation and it goes through everything that happens in order to arrive at the purpose of it in the first place, when God did any of it, separating the, 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 the light from the dark and then populating it with stars and skies and animals and everything, all of this activity, ultimately he rests when he creates humanity because he's done. Not just because it was the last thing in the, the sequence of actions, but because the purpose of any of it at the end of the day was the last thing that he did in the first place. 14.8 billion years ago, a big bang went off because God saw every possible circumstance that could ever be and saw the one that had you in it and chose it. You are more than desired. God went to a whole lot of trouble for you to exist. He moved a lot of earth, as they say in the construction world, so that you would exist. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then he rested. What that should cause you and I to do is breathe. Because the single most true reality of the human heart I've discovered is that no matter how hard we try, it is almost impossible for us to believe that, especially on our own power. If there is one thing that has a very hard time sinking in here, it's the fact before you earned any promotion or chased any dream or won any acclaim or affirmation, you were just good. And more than good, loved. The problem with our inability to believe that is it's the only thing our hearts actually want. All the rest of it, we do to cover up the aching sense that there has to be something more. That infinite love is what this heart is made for. Everything else is a distraction. He who has God and nothing else has everything. And deep down we know that. But that's hard. You were the plan from the beginning and the reason anything was created because of something you have called a soul. And what that soul can do that nothing else can do is be loved. It can actually receive love. It's like a radio antenna that sort of is beamed up and it's just desiring, craving love. And God wanted something because he is delight that could actually have that love poured into it. And so he made you. And the plan and the purpose of your life from the beginning was that you would be so loved that you would be perfectly at peace, perfectly content, perfectly happy. And in that receptivity, having been loved, John says it this way in his letter, we love because he first loved us. Having been loved, you would love him back. And that would make his little father's heart happy. The other week, we were at the ocean. 
visiting my uh, brother-in-law and my sister. They live in Florida. And it was freezing in the ocean. So I ran in with my brother-in-law, because I'm a man. And when I came out, my two-year-old Charlie, who thought that was pretty cool, was standing at the water's edge. And my wife captured this perfect moment on film. And the live is amazing. Like, if you hold it in the live, like, it's incredible, where he's just standing there like this. And I did. I, like, came out of the water, and I saw this. And it was like I almost passed out, you know? It's just like, that's it. Dads, am I right? That moment where the two-year-old just like puts their head on your shoulder and you just like hold them there. It's like, that's, that's 8,000 poopy diapers worth right there. <laughs> or 4,000 of Charlie's, if I'm being honest with you. Just a weird diet, that kid. That's all he wanted. That's why we exist. That's who the Father is. Anything else, any other image of God that we have is a result of what happened. Because Genesis chapter 3 says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals, and the serpent uses his cunning for a single purpose, to tear down the Father. When he comes to Adam and Eve, the first thing he does is sow mistrust. The Catechism of the Catholic Church's first words on sin. We know that the first sin was pride, of course, the exaltation of ourselves over God. It started with a lack of trust. Man, tempted by the devil, lost trust in his creator, the Catechism says, and turned towards sin. What happened is we stopped believing that he was good, that he had our best intentions in mind. The fruit was there not just as a test, but as a doorknob. If it's locked from the outside and you can't get out, then it's not love, it's slavery. You're in prison. And so the father gave him a choice. But he begged them, don't eat of it, because on the day you do, you will die. Eva, don't go in the street. You'll die. But they did. Eve took of the fruit and ate of it, turned to Adam, who was hiding behind Eve. And he ate of it, and they turn towards sin. And realizing that they're naked, they hide, and God comes down into the garden. The same father that every day would come down in the evening and says they would walk with him in the breezy time of day. This perfect just friendship and joy and relationship that existed there. Perfect trust and unity and playfulness in their relationship. And he said he can't find them. And he knows physically where they are. But he says, in my opinion... Some of the most heartbreaking words in all the Bible. Adam, where are you? And what the scripture does a really great job of showing us, and we do a really poor job of perceiving sometimes, is that what happened in that moment was a kidnapping. When we talk about Jesus' mission, we say it all the time. He comes to set the captives free, meaning they're in captivity, they're enslaved. There's a story in scripture where David's son, Absalom, overtakes his throne uh, and tries to kill David, and David's armies defeat Absalom's in battle, and as Absalom is riding along, he had flowing locks, they get caught in a tree, and as he's stuck there, he gets shot by some of David's archers, and David goes onto the parapet of Jerusalem that he's now taken back over from Absalom, and while he's up there, he hears news of Absalom's death, and you know what he says? He doesn't celebrate. He says, Absalom, my son, would that I could have died for you, my son. And every father knows what he means there, right? And it's an image of God the Father's love for humanity. Who attempting to overthrow the Father and cast him out and with broken trust and with hiding, trying to keep him away from our lives and let us have our earth. We want to live without you. We can do this ourselves. We don't need you. And all he can think to say as he watches us being taken into captivity and into death, into slavery, lorded over by powers over which we have no control and no hope of ever saving ourselves. 
Sin and death are inevitabilities that you and I have no control over. We are utterly, utterly hopeless in our condition. And all he can think to say, would that I could have died for you, my son. So he does. Who is Jesus? There's a priest, Father John Ricardo, who notes that what Jesus does in calling himself Redeemer is he identifies himself with a role in a Jewish family called a Goel. A Goel was the oldest son in the family. I would be the Goel. I would not be a very good Goel. I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'm an academic. And a Goel, what he had to do was if any of his siblings were taken in battle, the Goel had to go and pay their ransom and bring them home. And if any of his siblings were killed in battle, the Goel's job was to go and avenge their death no matter what. So when Jesus comes to earth and he opens his public ministry proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's saying is that I've come to take you home. The Father has sent me, so I send you. How many times does Jesus in his public ministry reference the Father? Right? He doesn't speak on his own, but he speaks what he hears from the Father. Like he couldn't be more clear to us. I'm here because Dad sent me to bring you home. I'm here to avenge your death, to pay your ransom, and to bring you home. And so to extend that mission and that life to the full to every time and every place we're going to talk about tomorrow, Jesus sent a church. And so an apostle was sent to plant a church in Texas, and that apostle put a, a church building in a part of Texas called Capel. And the reason that that church, which was named St. Anne's, exists is because the father who from all history, when his children were taken from him, refused to let them go and decided to die for them instead, desired to continue to have that relationship with people even thousands of years after his son died. And to bring everyone else in the area in that relationship with the same father who loves them just as much as he loves you and I, he sent a church. And that church, from all time, has been configured out of and confected around one mystery. And it's the mystery that that entire story is present in a tiny white host. J.R.R. Tolkien, writing a letter to his son, Christopher, said, I put before you the one thing to love above all other things, and it's the Blessed Sacrament. There you'll find all honor, all romance, all adventure. Here's why. From the beginning, we were made to receive love. The heart we were given, the soul we were given, will be satisfied by nothing except complete and unconditional love in a way no human can ever give. All human relationships are ultimately, every friendship, every marriage, about bringing us back to that love which alone can satisfy us. And that love is even more than just relational, it's transformational. When we receive it, like an old married couple, we actually start to look like the one we're in love with. You ever notice that married couples start to look alike over time? 
it changes who we are. We start to look like more of who we were made to be. And so for those of us who have seen too much of the church and its leadership and too much of the world and its fallenness and too much of ourselves and our brokenness and we find ourselves like salt that has lost its taste sitting outside of the tomb weeping there's only one answer that will satisfy it's Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness and when nothing in this world will satisfy you and if this parish and that world and this church is in need of renewal, then I am grateful to God that we've reached a place where we're ready to stop believing in our own power to bring it about. And we're ready to say, Dad, you can do it. When you come back to me with your whole hearts, you've tested the apostles and you've endured suffering, yet I hold this against you. You've lost the love you had at first. It doesn't have to be that way. But what it takes is surrender. What we're going to enter into now for the rest of our evening is a chance to be face-to-face -face with the resurrected God of the universe. That whole story, same guy. In the eyes of faith, what they will perceive is that there's not just... Uh, an ethical system there or a, a, a philosophical construct but there's a person Pope Benedict XVI put it this way being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty ideal it's the fruit of an encounter with a person who gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction a person who is capable of reaching into the shatteredness of my own life and of the world and making it new. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend time with that person. But brothers and sisters, God forbid that we would walk away from that encounter unchanged that we would approach it like a polite religious experience where we sort of devotedly just kind of like do the right things and say the right things and we leave our hearts on the sidelines. That we allow the disappointment and defeatedness of our own faith and its own inadequacies to cause us to refuse to open up again. No, Lord, I've been hurt too much. I gave you everything. And it wasn't enough, not enough to get me through. And so I can't go there with you again. St. John Vianney, famous priest, right, in ours, the devil said to him, if there were three priests like you in the world, my whole entire kingdom would be shattered. Unfortunately, there was only one, right? We're so close. There's two more. He had this uh, parishioner, holy, farmer, simple, who would sit in the back of his church every day when he came back in from the fields for like four or five hours. And at some point, St. John Vianney was like, I mean, I'm a saint, but this is crazy. So he went up and talked to him. He said, what do you do while you're sitting there for four hours, five hours? He said, well... Almost like you never thought about it. 
I picture him with overalls. He wasn't wearing overalls. He said, I sit here and I look at him. And he sits there and he looks at me. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. In my opinion, it's an irrefutable fact of human history. And on the day he rose from the dead, one of his disciples who had been so wounded and disappointed wept outside of his tomb. And he looked at her and he said, Mary. And she was new. Same guy. It's not a different God. It's not a different power. The same power that created the universe is about to sit here on the altar of this church. And brothers and sisters, five college students after a boring sermon led to the conversion of thousands like two weeks ago. They didn't have this. There's a reason we have more healings than anybody else, right? Let's not leave here tonight just because it's a Tuesday night in February of 2023 and we don't think that God does miracles anymore, renews lives anymore, changes the world anymore, just because we've lost the love we had at first. Let's not leave here tonight without letting him encounter us in a new way. So you join me in prayer. Please kneel. The St. Anne vision is to bring people to Jesus, form disciples, and send them to transform the world. To learn more about St. Anne, go to stannparish.org. God bless.